Welcome to this Pulmonary Rehab Assembly podcast where Dr. Mona Sarfati and I are going to discuss climate change and its impact on chronic respiratory disease. My name is Claire Nolan and I'm a director of the Pulmonary Rehab Assembly's web committee and a researcher from Harefield Hospital in the UK. Our guest on this podcast is Dr. Mona Sarfati and she's the executive director of the Medical Society Consortium on Climate and Health at the Centre for Climate Change Communication George Mason University in the US. Welcome Dr. Sarfati and thank you for providing your expertise for this podcast. To start, um, I wonder if you could tell me about climate change. We know that it's familiar with, for most people. Can you give a brief description of what it is and how it impacts and is projected to impact humanity? Yeah, sure. So temperatures all over the surface of the earth from the deepest places in the ocean to the highest mountaintops to everywhere in between uh, are rising at an unprecedented rate. Uh, and at a rise in the average temperature of the earth like that produces a cascading series of effects. The higher temperatures affect the balance of nature and this impacts human beings and all living things. The temperatures are rising so quickly as at an unprecedented rate that humans and the ecosystems that support human life are impacted in ways that we've not experienced before. Um, and they are harming human health and well-being. Some of those impacts include extreme heat with dangers of heat illness and heat stroke, heat changes, um, in the heat caused changes in the distribution of plants and insects that lead to um, aller more allergy symptoms and to new infectious diseases, torrential rains with flooding that endangers people and crops and built infrastructure, long lasting droughts that endanger food, food sources and forests because they make the forests more likely to um, erupt into wildfires uh, when lightning strikes. And so wildfire seasons uh, are lasting for more of the year. In some places, they're actually 100 days longer than they were previously. Um, and the wildfires are larger in total area than they have been before. Um, and then another consequence is sea level rise that together with extreme storms um, causing storm surges that also endanger people and infrastructure. So everybody is at risk, but some are in greater danger. And so we like to explain that um, children are in greater danger because they spend more time playing outside and their parents who grew up during a different time may not realize that they're at greater risk and may not protect them or warn them to take certain kinds of measures that would help protect them. Pregnant women, it turns out, are at greater risk because pregnancies are vulnerable to extreme heat and also to poor air quality. Um, people who have chronic conditions, including heart and lung conditions, are at greater risk. Elderly people are at greater risk because they may be in greater danger from heat. And then poor people um, who can't get out of harm's way when storms 
threaten um, are also often uh, at greater risk, or they may live in low-lying areas where they're more likely to get uh, flooded out. Um, And uh, we we feel that um, health professionals have a unique role to play uh, in issuing alerts um, about these dangers and closing the gap in uh, public recognition of the dangers. Uh, health professionals are trusted voices, especially when it comes to health. Um, and based on the work that's been done in the United States, when you talk to people about the health impacts of climate change, um, they are more interested and feel it's more relevant to them than when we focus on things like polar bears and glaciers. Thank you. It sounds terrifying. Um, And you mentioned about an impact on people with chronic lung disease. Is there any evidence that climate change may influence the general population's respiratory health? Is there any evidence that this has already occurred? And if so, what do you think could be done to mitigate these effects? Um, So, um, their um, evidence is increasing that climate change drives respiratory disease onset and exacerbations as a result of um, several things, several factors. One is increased um, outdoor ambient uh, air pollution um, and uh, to some degree indoor air pollution, uh, desertification, um, heat stress, wildfires, Uh, and the geographic and also temporal spread of pollens and molds and infectious agents uh, that are associated with increased allergenicity um, and and the increase we're seeing uh, of carbon dioxide concentration. And I can just kind of break that out a little bit. So um, increased temperature and light causes the organic organic compounds, i.e. the fumes, in our air to transform to ozone. And ozone is directly irritating of the airways um, and the mucosal surfaces like the eyes um, and the nose and the throat. As ozone goes up with higher temperatures, people who have underlying lung conditions like asthma or COPD are likely to get into greater trouble. So that means that the heat, it's not just the air pollution, it's the underlying heat combined with the light that worsens air pollution that also amounts to a problem that can affect uh, people on a a widespread basis. Um, And then of course, when we have these, you know, drier periods, droughts and uh, the dust that goes along with that um, means that there may be more particles in the air. The fires certainly mean more particles in the air that are contained in the smoke and may, uh, which may travel for hundreds of miles. And in some cases, the pollen, which is uh, more plentiful because of longer growing seasons, is also small enough to be considered the kind of particulate matter that causes problems for, certainly for people who have underlying lung conditions. But um, if it's enough, those impacts the wildfires, uh, the ozone, 
um, the particles that come from the allergy, from the pollen, um, they can affect everybody, really. They'll affect air quality because the particulates rise. And, um, and that can be a danger uh, to people who are sensitive, but also a danger to people who don't have a, a particular sensitivity. And then the, uh, the rain uh, that we see and the flooding um, does, is causing a growth of mold um, in many places. Um, and so we've got people who are allergic to mold. Um, if they happen to have asthma, they may get into greater trouble because of the mold. The asthma attacks uh, that they experience uh, may drive them to the emergency room uh, or to hospitalization. Uh, people who don't have asthma can be effect- impacted as well. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I mean, all of these things um, can drive uh, lung symptoms uh, for the general public, as well as for people who have underlying lung disease. And uh, there are many things that can be done for mitigation. Uh, to mitigate the impacts on individuals, awareness and education can be very helpful. Um, People should know that um, they need to be aware of what the air quality is around them. Um, They can um, improve the indoor air quality by getting certain kinds of equipment in their homes, uh, by working with their their heating and air conditioning providers, um, and, um, you know, and knowing that when the air quality outside is poor, that's not the best day to go outside and do a, you know, a vigorous walk or take a run. Uh, but in other words, um, adjust their activity to what the air quality is. Um, and, you know, when it comes to things like, um, you know, mosquitoes and other insects, uh, mitigation can mean uh, making people aware of these dangers so that they protect themselves if there's um, mosquito-borne diseases that they are uh, subject to. They should know about that and be able to use the kind of repellents that uh, have DEET and will keep the dangerous mosquitoes away, you know, or be careful if they're exposed to ticks. We've had a a great increase in tick-borne disease in the United States. take uh, precautions for that as well in the form of insect repellents. Um, You know, jurisdictions can mitigate uh, flood problems by uh, addressing the combined stormwater draining that combines with sewage draining. Many places in our country have combined outflows for stormwater overflow and for sewage. And so when the capacity um, is stressed, the sewage that's mixed with the stormwater backs up and then it can contaminate crops or, you know, communities in certain ways. And so that's something that can be mitigated. Um, And then similarly, having better infrastructure for sea level rise uh, is something that many uh, cities um, need to do. And then with regard to mitigating the causes of all this, um, we need to uh, change the way we get, uh, we generate energy, uh, change um, the uh, access to 
uh, transportation options. So we have more active transportation options and more public transportation so people can get out of their polluting cars um, and uh, reduce that element of what's um, causing a rise in carbon pollution um, and uh, and also uh, you know general pollution of the atmosphere. Um, and then there are a- agriculture um, policies that can help us to mitigate the overall picture. Um, the use of nitrogen-based fertilizers um, in many places is contributing to a rise in nitrogen dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, and that, of course, is a precursor for ozone formation. And so moving in the direction of more organic Food production, um, you know, uh, is something that uh, is uh, is happening in the United States and maybe other places and something that, you know, we hope will uh, expand. Um, and similarly, um, you know, consumption of um, red meat, cattle uh, as a basis of a, as a food source, we know, you know, drives the methane level up further. Um, and then that also contributes to global warming. So these kind of underlying causes that have to do with how we generate energy, how efficient our use of energy is, um, how we uh, transport ourselves, and then um, how we conduct agriculture. These are all things that can mitigate the underlying causes. Thank you. You've nicely outlined what people with chronic lung disease need to do on a day-to-day basis to to manage their disease. And you've also identified some important policy changes that need to take place. If we talk now about the, the people in the middle, the healthcare systems and the healthcare professionals, what can they do to minimize the impact of climate change on people with chronic respiratory disease? I'm so asked you, so glad you asked that question, and that also has a two-part answer. And I'll start with uh, what we can do at the places that we actually deliver healthcare. Um, it turns out that they are rather energy-intensive, um, and so um, the health sector itself can decrease its contribution to the problem of climate change by um, improving its um, energy efficiency. Uh, changing its uh, energy sources, so we're using less polluting sources and more clean renewable sources, um, and also think about decreasing waste, um, waste streams so that we're not sending more material than is absolutely necessary to um, incinerators, which also pollute the air. Um, and one other aspect of that that some of my, my anesthesiologist friends have Um, educated me about is that some of the anesthesia gases are actually very intense um, greenhouse gases and there are alternatives that um, that cause less uh, that that would contribute less to global warming so there's that piece Um, and then um, with regard to um, what we can uh, talk to um, to uh, patients about there's just a huge amount that we can do there. Um, So um, we take care of, of course, the American Thoracic Society takes care of a lot of people with chronic respiratory disease. 
Um, and of course, you know, family physicians do as well, and maybe maybe many pediatricians and internists. Um, and um, as global warming gets more intense, we're likely to see more patients whose illnesses are affected by climate change. Um, and um, we can be educating them so that they can protect themselves. They, as I mentioned before, can be aware of the air quality index and conduct, plan their activities accordingly. Um, in certain circumstances, when there are wildfires and they may be exposed to increased amounts of smoke, they could wear protective masks. Um, you know, the N95 masks were in high demand on the West Coast at the time we had those huge fires in California and up in Washington State. Of course, right now we have, you know, an unprecedented demand on the N95 masks. But those can be very helpful for people who are walking around with um, you know, and uh, having to breathe air that is uh, got an air quality index of 250 or higher, um, which was the case on the West Coast during those fires. Um, and, uh, you know, we can be careful to warn specific populations about this as well. Uh, you know, we mentioned before about children. Um, children's lungs are developing. Um, you know, maybe you need to be specially Focus. Their parents need to be especially focused on what they're being exposed to, and so they can be educated. Pregnant women's pregnancies are more in danger um, when air quality is poor, when there are particulates uh, at high levels, so they can be uh, educated. Anybody who's got an underlying pulmonary disease is in the same boat and needs to be told um, about this danger and how they can protect themselves. So that awareness and education um, so that the, you know, the healthcare patient understands and can contribute to their own protection is, is vital. Thank you. And the, the, the next group that um, I'd like to talk about are the academics. So the academic community have a huge role to play in the, the mitigation of climate change in terms of helping us understand what's going on and understand the best practices to, to reduce our impact on the climate and to, to hopefully reverse the damage that, that we've done. However, the academic community themselves will have an impact on climate change. And have you any thoughts on, on how this community can work towards uh, improving their practices? Yeah, uh, yeah, several things there. Um, one, and this goes for the academic community um, especially, uh, because they're often associated with um, large hospitals. Um, and, um, you know, their expressions of concern to the administrations of those hospitals can make a significant difference about whether hospitals move forward with trying to change their own environmental footprints. Um, and I think that's true for physicians in general, not just the research community, but physicians in general who often are actually quite influential with hospital administrations. If they, the medical staff expresses its concern to hospital administration about the footprint, um, you know, there's a very good chance that um, that will at least put the issue uh, on the agenda uh, for the leadership of the hospital. So that's one area where they can make a big difference. 
The other is in the actual research that is being done. Um, you know, as I understand it, the World Health Organization is very eager to understand especially what benefit there is to making changes that um, either reduce the um, pollution of the air or that, that protect people from the pollution of the air. Um, and so, you know, they, what they would like to know and be able to share with other gov- with governments is if you do this, you will see this kind of change and it will have this kind of benefit so that they can be heavily weighing in on the solutions side and be able to advise countries on what it means to put solutions in place. So I, I think, you know, the greatest need really is on the solution side. What can we do? What will it accomplish? Um, and, uh, you know, to establish that and then share that information. So, so far, we've had a pretty serious conversation um, and it's been pretty downbeat. I'd like to finish off the podcast on a bit more of a positive note, um, if possible. Do you have any examples of policy changes that have positively influenced respiratory health? Absolutely. There's tremendous, um, just tremendous evidence in that regard. And so I would like to... um, focus attention on a recent article that was in the Annals of the American Thoracic Society, uh, the lead author of which was um, Dr. Schaufnagel, S-C-H-A-U-F, second Frank, N-A-G-E-L. And it was all about um, the benefits of um, changes in, uh, in policy um, that have improved respiratory health. The entire article was focused on um, how respiratory health is improved based on public policies that have changed and protected people uh, or improved the health of those who already had respiratory disease. Um, and just to give one factual piece of information that um, is stressed in that article, The United States Environmental Protection Agency determined that um, the the health benefits of the Clean Air Act that we passed in the United States in 1970 with additional amendments in 1990 and 1999 uh, had actually improved the cost of health, which also says something about improving the health health, uh, status of, of uh, U.S. residents, um, 32 to 1 was the cost benefit, 32 to 1. And they were uh, primarily um, the $2 trillion worth of benefits. It was a total of $2 trillion that was um, the benefit of the Clean Air Act. And this was attributable to, attributable to lower mortality with an estimated 230000 deaths avoided every year due to lower concentrations of particulate matter um, and um, also reductions in premature mortality due to lower ozone concentrations. And they estimated that about 7,000 deaths per year. 
um, reductions in acute myocardial infarctions. That was 200,000 fewer cases per year. Uh, and avoided hospital admissions uh, for respiratory conditions, and that was 66,000 fewer admissions per year. Uh, and reductions in asthma exacerbations, and that was 2.5 million fewer attacks per year. So this is something to be extremely um, you know, optimistic about. If we can clean the air, we will get a tremendous amount um, of uh, improvement in our health status uh, and in these specific uh, respiratory conditions. Um, and you know, most of this really comes from doing the things that we already know will improve the air quality. So it's not like we need to invent a whole new technology or you know, need a whole new body of research about what it is that's polluting the air. We know that our energy sources um, you know, especially those that come from fossil fuels are polluting the air. We know that the transportation that uh, is based on fossil fuels polluting the air. Together, those two factors account for about 80% of it. For those who were working indoors, like women in, in low and middle income countries, we know that often it's those cook stoves that they use inside the house that are based on coal that are causing their air within their house to be polluted and then um, contributing to their lung difficulties. So we know what the causes are and we already have the solutions available to decrease the um, emissions that come from those sources. We know we, you know, clean renewable energy allows us um, to reduce the fossil fuel emissions. We know that public transportation or um, facilitating active transportation, bicycles and, you know, complete streets where it's easier to walk and, you know, and, um, and public transportation um, that's based on, not based on fossil fuels, allows us to reduce that component, the transportation component. We know that energy efficiency, which could allow us to reduce our energy use by somewhere between 25 and 40% in the United States, and maybe less in Europe, where you're ahead of the game with regard to um, using energy efficiency. But um, in our country, we, if we reduce, uh, we could reduce output um, based on energy um, that's generated with fossil fuels by 25 to 40% just by using off-the-shelf technologies that will improve our energy efficiency. So everything is there and available. We just need to embrace it, disseminate it, spread it, um, and we will improve the quality of our air and that will improve our health. I think that's a wonderful note to finish on. So on behalf of the Pulmonary Rehab Assembly Web Committee, I'd like to thank Dr. Sarfati for her insights, expertise and time. Thank you also to our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Goodbye.